Welcome, Eco Interviews listeners. I'm glad you've joined me. I'm Fiona Martin, and I started the Eco Interviews as a way to amplify the voices of people tackling the climate crisis we find ourselves in. The Eco Interviews is completely self-funded, so if you enjoy this content and would like to see and hear more in 2021, I encourage you to support us by donating via Patreon, subscribing to the podcast and YouTube channel, and sharing this content with your family and friends. I'm excited to introduce you to Carmen Muñequete in this week's episode. Carmen currently works as a principal consultant at Environment Resource Management based in Maputo, Mozambique. She's an experienced professional with more than 17 years working in development across the mining, agricultural, environment and climate change and humanitarian relief sectors. What an opportunity to speak with someone doing amazing work from the other side of the world. It's unfortunate that we do not hear more or know more about what's going on in Africa, so connecting with Carmen in Mozambique was a real treat. It's worth keeping in mind that developing countries like Mozambique suffer the brunt of climate change disasters even while their population are the lowest contributors to the causes of accelerated global warming. For example, while the richest 10% of people produce half of the planet's individual consumption-based fossil fuel emissions, the poorest 50%, about 3.5 billion people, contribute only 10%. How is a developing country like Mozambique helping its people face multiple crises like poverty, violence, lack of infrastructure, and climate change? Carmen is working on the front lines to tackle these issues, and she shares her story with us today. Okay, welcome Carmen Munyekete to the Eco Interviews. How are you doing today? I'm fine, Fiona. Thank you. And I apologize for ruining your last name. Please say your name for us so that that can be corrected. (laughs) Actually, you pronounce it well. It's Munyekete. It's right. (laughs) <laughs> Carmen Muñiquet. Carmen is a yeah. senior consultant and a Mozambican in the environmental sector. And I'm very excited to speak with her because we don't often get the opportunity to hear from countries uh, in Africa or other parts of the world about what's going on where you are and some of the amazing environmental work that you do. So before we get into your personal experience, can you um, outline uh, Mozambique, where it is on the map? and uh, some some highlights, some features for us so that we can really contextualize Mozambique in our minds. Okay, Fiona, thank you very much. Well, uh, Mozambique. Mozambique is located in the eastern coast of Africa, and uh, our surrounding countries are Tanzania in north side, Malawi, Zambia, and Zimbabwe in west, South Africa, and Swaziland in south. And uh, the country is also have a long coastal area and it's covered by Indian Ocean. It's a very extensive country, I would say. Uh, and uh, it has about 800,000 uh, kilometers square and uh, a long coastal area, coastal line with about 2,700 kilometers square. So it's, it's basically located in Southern Africa region. And it's amazing country. It's not because it's my country, <laughs> but it's an amazing country. And I hope uh, that after this interview, people can search a bit more 
and try to find out more about Mozambique. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I was looking at the map, it just uh, that long coastline on the east coast of Africa looks beautiful. And it, um, I guess across the water from you, you're looking at Madagascar. Is that correct? Exactly. This is right. Uh, yeah, we have Madagascar in nearby. And I must say uh, that from a um, climate environment perspective, Madagascar is protecting us at some, at some point, especially when it comes to tropical cyclones. Uh, Madagascar ended up as a barrier and protecting us in that region. So we are neighbors and they are playing an important role for when it comes to protect Mozambique, uh, especially looking to the uh, current climate hazards we are facing in, in, in country. Uh, we also have, I would say, a, a population, I would say huge population. It's near to 31 million and is increasing over the years. In 2019, the statistics show that uh, we increased uh, in about uh, uh, two, uh, yeah, two to three percent a year. And uh, according to, to our National Statistics Institute, we expected to increase by 2030, we might uh, be around 36 to 37 million. And uh, um, yeah, it's interesting because the majority of population are young people. Uh, and uh, in 2019, again, like only uh, 40 plus 7 percent of the population were people with more than 60 years old. So you can see uh, it's really a young population. And uh, but unfortunately, the life expectancy is not that long. We are talking about uh, 53, between 53 to 54 years old. And uh, the majority of the population as well living, is living in rural areas. We have about 66% of the population living in rural areas. And as you can imagine, um, we are not yet a developed country. So the poverty is higher there. So the majority of population live there and the poverty levels are really high in mm -hmm. rural areas. And being uh, an extensive country, as I was mentioning, uh, the development becomes a big challenge when it, come to, when it comes to, to invest, invest in infrastructure, invest in sanitation, invest in uh, other social services, and the quality of the standards of living, I would say. Yeah, so I think in summary, this, this is Mozambique. Mm -hmm. uh, the climate is tropical, as we only have two seasons, mm -hmm. summer and winter. And now with climate change, uh, things are changing. Mm -hmm. uh, the the summer is becoming longer than the winter, uh, but still a good place to be. Mm -hmm. And historically speaking, uh, Mozambique is a former colony of Portugal, and you guys gained your independence in the 70s, I guess? 1975. Okay. 
I still know a little bit of history. <laughs> so true. in terms That's of the language. Right, the official language, yes. Mm -hmm. The official language is Portuguese. And this still a challenge, especially looking to our location and our surrounding countries. All of them are English-speaking countries. So when it comes to, of course, we have our native languages. And some of these languages are similar. But even though when it comes to, I would say, development initiatives, when it comes to technology, English is really important. And uh, this make us or put us in a disadvantaged position as a country, especially when it comes to access to information, when it comes to exchanging learning from what others are doing and share our experience as well. So, of course, in, in big cities, it is a must to, to speak, at least to be able to communicate in English. So, in big cities, as I, I mentioned before, uh, young population, mm -hmm. so more and more people are, are able to communicate in English, but still, this is still a big barrier, mm -hmm. I must say. Mm -hmm. yes. Because not everyone even, well, not everyone speaks English, but not everyone speaks Portuguese either, right? Exactly, exactly. This, this is the point, actually. Mm -hmm. This is the point. So we are still have, yeah, a, a, I would say uh, a group of people, the majority actually, especially in rural areas, that are not able to speak Portuguese. And even our media you know, the means of communications we have in country and the media, the information is passed through uh, Portuguese, at least the critical information, especially when it comes to science, technology. The general information now, there are efforts, I must say that, over the last three to four years, all these uh, big stations, radio stations and TV stations, they have specific sessions in local languages. Mm -hmm. So this helps. But still, like when it comes to, to these means of communication, they don't cover all country. We have what we call community radios. Those, yes, cover all country. But still, like there are people who still don't have access to means to, to I would say, to the tools, they don't have a radio at home, they don't have a TV, they don't have electricity. Mm -hmm. They are still in very pre living in precarious house. So you can imagine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah. thank you for setting. Despite this thing. the efforts, yeah. The, the, despite the effort, as I said, in terms of cover coverage, uh, the community radios are doing their best in terms of cover. In, in all provinces, districts, and um, share information as much as possible. But we are talking about general information, not technical or scientific information like climate uh, change, environmental-related topics. At some point, they try to cover some topics on agriculture, uh, but not much, taking, take, taking into account that uh, many people have in agriculture their means of you know, uh, their means to survive they depending on a, 
agriculture to, to survive. So it's really critical to pass information, pass on information on agriculture. Mm-hmm. Well, thank yes. you for setting the stage for Mozambique. Let's talk more about what you, Car- what you do, Carmen, because you have uh, decades of experience um, in the environmental movement and in uh, academia and beyond. So you tell us exactly, um, tell us about your experience, what you're doing and what you're doing in, uh, in Mozambique. Okay, um, first of all, uh, I must thank uh, for this opportunity. Uh, it, it is always uh, a pleasure to, to have this kind of conversations, uh, discussions, uh, because I look at this as an opportunity to share what we are doing as a country, uh, the challenges we are facing, the lessons we learned so far, and also learn from uh, what's happening worldwide. So it, it is always uh, a chance and an opportunity. And as I mentioned, language is still a barrier, but uh, since I can speak English, at least I'm able to communicate in English. Mm-hmm. So I have an additional responsibility uh, when it comes to be part of the development process ongoing in my country. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you said, yes, I'm Carmen Munyeket, I'm Mozambican. I've been working for the development sector over the last 17, 18 years, uh, mostly across, I would say, climate change, environment, agriculture, gender justice, uh, and sustainable livelihoods. And uh, I've been working for, as an independent consultant, joining uh, different organizations and companies, also representing different NGOs and development agencies, and uh, playing a role, I would say, starting from decision-making, leadership, um, also supporting a lot in terms of capacity building, uh, promoting um, empowerment initiatives, especially targeting uh, communities. And uh, yeah, in terms of building capacity as well, I work at, uh, at Parliament as well, like an advising role to our parliamentarians here. So it has been in between like capacity building, develop and implement programs, advocacy, lobby, and uh, yeah, it's mainly what we have been doing over, over the last years. And besides parliamentarians and communities, also civil society organizations, politicians, and students, those uh, yeah, are the target groups I've been working so far. Incredibly busy, I know that. So tell us, <laughs> tell us about the environmental situation in Mozambique and then how Mozambique in particular is affected by something like climate change. Um, I know that 
you guys were hit by a cyclone a couple of years ago, Cyclone Idai. So when we think of climate change, we think of those big weather events, but there's much more. It's not just a cyclone. There's uh, other elements that come into play. So can you tell us about Mozambique and climate change in particular? Yes. Uh, well, I must, I must say that uh, we, we started talking, discussing, and understanding in trying to understand climate change and environmental related challenges over the last 10 to 15 years. Uh, so it's slight new, I will, I will say like that, at least in my country, but I know from, uh, from my working experience that other African, especially African countries are facing the same. Uh, I will say that we, Similarly to other African countries, we are also still learning and try to understand a bit more about this phenomenon. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, this has been, I would say, yeah, a big challenge for us uh, because we have been, I would say, impacted by climate change uh, almost on a yearly basis, like we in country have climate hazards such as cyclones, droughts, tropical cyclones mainly, drought and floods, depending on the side of the country. So when it comes to the coastal area, it's mainly tropical cyclones. Inside the country, we have specifications. There are areas where we have droughts, we call uh, arid and semi-arid regions. And then we, there are areas where we are facing droughts because we host some of the river basins in the region, very important river basins, uh, like Zambezi is a good example, Limpopo and others. Some of those, they they just cross the country and others are really based here. And the main challenge here is that we don't have the appropriate management structure in place. Where I'm saying management structure, I'm talking about the infrastructure, you know, to manage uh, the water properly. We don't have uh, yet the appropriate technical skills and capacity, and we don't have yet the appropriate technology. I must say that a lot, as government is doing a lot in terms of addressing these challenges, mainly investing in infrastructure sector, training people to work in these sectors, but still, as I said, this has been mostly on a yearly basis. As such, doesn't give us enough time as well to prepare ourselves. And uh, when it comes to investments, there are also other priorities, especially on social services, health, education. So the government is trying to respond to all these things. So it will take time for us to be prepared to manage that. So environment slash climate change are, are two critical topics 
that are undermining the development efforts. Because, you know, the, I will just give few examples. We are still, um, we don't yet have enough in terms of investments, in terms of money to be able to, for example, build the roads using the climate adapted codes. So we are still using the old style code to build roads because in doing so, we are able to save some money to invest in other priority sectors. But looking to the vulnerability of our country, you should already be doing things really strictly to adapt to climate change. And besides uh, the, the factors I have just mentioned, I would add uh, our location as well. Uh, uh, when we started that conversation, I mentioned where we are located in Africa, the long coastal line, and all these factors transform or make environment and climate change as a priorities. In my opinion, those ones should be really included as part of the country priorities. And when it comes to planning and budgeting, we should include these things. Mm-hmm. And allocate appropriate resources. I'm talking about financing and uh, technical and human resources, technology, everything. Mm-hmm. It seems to but, be that, mm-hmm. yes, please. It seems to be that internal struggle to address immediate problems versus trying to allocate resources for long-term improvement. I think every country and government might suffer from this ailment. <laughs> yeah, it's true, and and um, we are still uh, a developing country. As such, we are still, besides the, the factors I've just mentioned, uh, we, in terms of technology, in terms of skills, uh, I will say that we are improving because uh, in 2019, according to our statistics, we were about, we still have about 39% of the population that never been to a school, mm. literate people, about 39%. So this is still huge. So if you are still fighting to educate people, how can you start discussing technology, science, and all these things? And uh, I also mentioned the challenge in terms of accessing information. Uh, when it comes to climate or environmental information, it's very specific. You will be using technical language. So the challenge here is how to translate that content to make sure that all Mozambicans can understand what we are talking about. You mentioned Cyclone Idai happened in 2019. And uh, I was lucky to join one of the teams who went there to do the work after the cyclone in terms of assisting 
affected people in rebuilding their livelihoods and try to understand the main challenges there as part of the Grand Bargain Agreement. So we were hired, me and more consultants, we hired to go there and to do that assessment. And interestingly, while talking to people, we are trying to understand what happened because people uh, received information, but many of them, they stayed at home. And then they said, no, what happened is that they said that the cyclone is coming and we have experience with cyclone. So we decided to wait to see what will happen afterward. But then all of a sudden, we saw electricity, everything went down, even communication. So we didn't even know what to do. But the point here is that they were talking about a cyclone, category four cyclone. So how you can translate this information to make people understand when you are saying category three, category four, what are you talking about in terms of clear impact in people? So the information, they got information, but they didn't understand mm -hmm. the meaning of that information. And all of a sudden, just after they're getting information, hours later, they didn't have access to electricity, either to communications. Mm -hmm. Phones went down, electricity went down. They couldn't go anywhere because it was raining, you know. So the, the winds were really strong winds. You can imagine people were disesperated without communication. If they could understand the meaning of category four cyclone and my understanding in talking to authorities and people that are working for, for the, the National Disaster Risk Institute, Disaster Management Institute, they said that they try as much as possible to spread information and people got access to that information, but they couldn't translate and understand that information. So it's really critical here. How do we translate that technical information to make sure that everyone can understand the message? Ah, mm. uh, yeah. Yeah, as a linguist, that's really, that, that it, it interests me because I'm thinking, um, you know, some of the, uh, let's say older languages, traditional languages, like don't have terms, just like what you're saying for certain technologies. I think of, uh, Scottish Gaelic, uh, they use the word helicopter for a helicopter because there were no helicopters when this language was being determined. And so I imagine that you face similar when it comes to climate terms. You know, I don't know the climate terms even in Portuguese. It would be hard for me to, <laughs> to say them in Portuguese. And certainly when you're dealing with a lot of yes. traditional languages, it must be um, quite a quite difficult, as you mentioned, so that people aren't understanding the information that you're putting out and acting accordingly. Yes, and uh, another, another important thing to mention as well is our poverty rates. We have high poverty rates. Mm -hmm. um, the last statistics I could get was for 2015, and there we were about 63% mm -hmm. of poor. Of course, here, um, I should mention that the measure was the multidimensional poverty index, which is composed by health, 
education and standards of living. You know, covering all this. Because this discussion about how to, to measure poverty still <laughs> mm -hmm. ongoing uh, on what would be the best mean of doing that. But, you know, through the United Nations and the other organizations, they came up with the multidimensional poverty index that it's used mostly by UNDP when it comes to, to, to measure. So in 2015, we were 63% mm -hmm. of poor in Mozambique which is, I would say, huge. Mm -hmm. And, uh, okay, we are now in 2020. And during these years, what we had, we had climate hazards, we had the economic crisis, and now with COVID-19, mm. you can imagine how many are we in that situation. So when I'm saying poor, what I'm saying, I'm saying that the infrastructures are really poor. Remember, I said that 66% of population is still living in rural areas. Uh, so the statistics show that about 48% of the population still living in precarious houses. 22% uh, of population have access to electricity, only 22. Mm -hmm. uh, I would say... 48% have access to clean water in their houses because the rest can get water, but not at home. So they need to walk distances to be able to access to, you know, to clean water. And only 9% of population have access to toilets in their houses, like you can imagine. So the poverty is really high. So when we are having these hazards, this comes over the situation people we are already living with really almost nothing. And I saw in, in, in Beira after Idai, I went to Buzi, one of the most affected areas. And it was really sad to see that people already were living with really almost nothing. And the, the cyclone came and destroyed everything. So they were, start, they were trying to restart, but with, without really the appropriate means. And doesn't meaning that they were not getting help. They were getting. Government were doing what they could. But again, the situation was already, like before cyclone, the poverty was already high in that region. So after cyclone, it was terrible. Mm -hmm. So the, the climate and the environmental impact is really strong because the, I would say the structure of the country to deal with these hazards is not there. People already are living with minimal, in minimal standards of living. So when they have to face these situations, they really get to a point where they don't have anything to eat, actually, because again, like they rely on their own farms, mm -hmm. which are rain-feeded farms. And in these cases, they stay without anything. Yeah. And they are also lost in terms of human lives. I must mention that. Mm -hmm. It's not only infrastructures. It's also human lives. 
mm-hmm. people died there. So, and this is besides also the economic impacts. We are still fighting <laughs> as a country. There was a study from uh, World Bank, and they were saying that the cost of these disasters in country in 2003, between 1980 to 2003, was about was near to two billions. Mm-hmm. And that study predicts if we don't do much in terms of addressing and adapting ourselves between from like from 2003 to 2050 they're expecting that cost to increase to 7 billion a year mm-hmm. the cost of this hazard for the economy so we already have a very fragile economy so with this you can imagine yeah, yeah. but but well i was so far I was sharing what is happening what that, is distribution yeah. and what contributes for for that? I think it really highlights um, what we hear about how the developed world is causing much of the human uh, exacerbated climate change while the developing world are the hardest hit. And you highlighted it's not just location, your, your location plays into it, but it's also the high rate of poverty that um, you're ar- it's already behind the eight ball. How do you catch up when you just it just keeps getting hit? And, and I appreciate you highlighting that because it is something we have to keep in mind in a developed country many people have the ability to uh, protect themselves or shield themselves from the greatest um, effects of climate change. And there are billions of people in the world who do not have that privilege. Um, So in that note, what is Mozambique doing uh, as you are facing these uh, climate change and addressing these issues? I think we are doing quite a lot. I think in the region and in Africa, we are very well positioned when it comes to climate and environmental issues. Uh, internationally, we, we ratified already the Paris Agreement. And we are also part of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. In 2015, we defined our national determinate contributions. And recently, uh, two years ago, we, we came up with a very clear plan, you know, um, pointing out uh, what are the priorities the country has. And uh, it, it's good because it highlights, like, has country priorities, and we are already working on it. Uh, the water management systems, uh, the capacity building initiatives, the use of t- technology, improvement of early warning systems, also improve the quality of infrastructures. So the NDC, as we call it, this is a climate term, mm-hmm. <laughs> national determined contributions as mm-hmm. part of the Paris Agreement, highlights clearly the priority the country has also highlights the what we need to be able to implement this in terms of resources 
human, financial, you know, what, what we need, what do we have, and what, what we still need support. So it's a very clear and very useful document. And besides that, uh, we also, uh, ah, and in that document, we are committing to reduce about, uh, I would say, 31 uh, in terms of MTCO2, which is the measure, you know, to highlight the, the amount of carbon we'll be reducing in between 2020 to 2025. Mm -hmm. So this is about, like I would say, the international uh, agreements and international bodies that Mozambique is part of and is trying to comply with all these international regulations. Internally, in terms of legal framework, I would say that we have an amazing legal framework. We have a national climate mitigation and adaptation strategy, which also highlights what needs to be done in each sector, actions to be taken over the next years, supports, resources, and everything. So I would say that the national strategy is the umbrella of all actions being implemented in country. So from that national climate mitigation and adaptation strategy, part of the actions include also this, the sectoral plans. So each sector should have their specific climate change plan. And there is a process ongoing in our country. As I said, rural areas are really priority. The local level is a key development priority. In understanding that, government years, our government years ago decided to put in place a development strategy which puts the district, the district is our local level, uh, in center of all development process, which meaning that the district have the freedom. They call it decentralization process, meaning that district sits and do their own planning process. There is a staff. So government started investing in at local level, which we call districts. It's the smaller, I will say, the smaller administrative division we have. We have more locality and so on, but district, I would say, is the center of the development. And government, I think, is from 2010 to 2014, if I'm not mistaken. So the government started investing there in terms of putting human resources, in terms of upgrading the quality of resources allocated to district. And now you have a planning team in each district. And the planning team is composed by different government institutions, INGOs, and everyone, like the key sectors represented in that district. So once a year, they come together to do the planning and budgeting process. At least they can prioritize and they can do their own planning. So using that opportunity, Today in Mozambique, most of the districts, they have their own climate adaptation planning, which is an amazing because each district prioritizes already key actions to be implemented as part of the climate agenda, climate slash environmental agenda. Of course, the man, main challenge is still the financial resources to be able to implement and cover 
all the priorities the district have, but at least it's a good step. So besides all planning process from national to local level that covers and integrates climate and environmental related issues, we also have uh, institutions, the critical institutions are in country. Few examples include like the Ministry of Environment and Land, the National Institute for Disaster Risk Management, the Meteorology Institute, the Knowledge Management Center for Climate Change. So those are few examples, the Ministry of Planning, uh, of Planning and Finance. So few institutions, but we have many, we have infrastructures, we have many more. So in terms of legal framework is there, it's mm -hmm. clear, ready to be implemented with action plans and everything. In terms of institutional and government arrangements, governance arrangements are also there. It's clear who does what, when, and the political mandates as well. And uh, we are also interestingly investing on academy. We have few universities now with clear uh, courses and training on these topics. So for my perspective, what's still missing here is really the, the money, the money, the necessary amount to be allocated to cover. Because as I said, this is really a priority for our country. So if we get the necessary resources, we'll be able to implement because we have clarity on what needs to be done when needs to be done, ah, institutional arrangements as well, when it comes to coordination between different institutions. Uh, I was pleased to, to coordinate a big program years ago, one of the first big program on climate change adaptation implemented at national level, and it was also implemented in 20 African countries. It was really an amazing program because the main objective was to reinforce country capacities to get adapted and respond to climate change. And uh, yeah, covering five, I would say five key main points. One was access to information and early warning systems. So try to upgrade the systems the country had at that time to be able really, because there is no way to address climate hazards or climate-related challenges without information mm -hmm. in advance in terms of knowing what's happening today and what could happen tomorrow, you know? Mm -hmm. So early warning systems was one component. The second component was, was to look at the institutional arrangements. And the main objective was to have institutions, especially government institutions, collaborating and working together. Because at that time, they used to work on silos, like each institution used to look at their own, I will say, responsibility and look at environment slash climate change uh, as an uh, environmental issue. So under the responsibility of the Minister of Environment, assuming that other institutions don't have anything to do with this topic. And then there, yeah, there was uh, 
a critical, I would say, uh, priority in terms of making everyone understand that climate change and the environment are development, cross-cutting development topic, not necessarily an environmental topic. And each institution could play an important role in addressing these, these topics. And it was in, important to really to make people understand. And for Mozambique, footnotely, we now have what they call institutional, inter-institutional climate change working group. It's a group where all institutions are, are represented, including some civil society organizations as well. So they come together on a regular basis. They play an important role to draft that country strategy that we have today. And I will say that they're acting in front line and each institution now knows clearly how they can contribute for this process. Uh, and the, the third point was financing. How can we be better prepared to catch finance, to, to catch funds worldwide? And how can we be organized to be accountable. You know, most of these institutions that are providing fund, funds worldwide, they have clear compliance and clear, you know, guidelines that needs to be followed. Otherwise, you can't get those funds. And fortunately, now we have in country uh, the, national, the National Sustainable Development Fund is a clear institution who deals, among others, with climate and environmental and agriculture funds. They're managing, they know exactly how much we have in country. They do sort of tracking. They also help the country in uh, approaching to donors and development agencies, presenting like country priorities. And they are also working, yeah, they are playing an important role when it comes to fundraising, but it's not only fundraising, it's fundraising, monitoring and management of these funds at country level. The fourth component was on knowledge management. And we also worked on that. And today we have a knowledge management center for climate and environment in country. And uh, finally, the last component was on uh, piloting small projects. Uh, and the main objective of that component was to, I would say, learning by doing, piloting projects on agriculture. It was mostly on smart agriculture, piloting projects on water conservation, uh, piloting projects on... Uh, infrastructure, building adapted infrastructures, of course, small infrastructures, especially at community level. So the program covered all these five components and we can still see these results today. So the country is moving. The tricky point here, I think the main challenge we still have is funding, access to appropriate funding mechanisms to be able to implement what we already included as uh, the activities needs to be conducted at country level as a priority, I would say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 
That's um, it, it's very impressive. It sounds like you have a uh, solid foundation in terms of legal framework and the and the way the government is set up, and um, rightly so. The the uh, non siloing of environmental issues because you know environmental issues affects everything and everyone. If we talk about the earth, we only live on the earth. And so when the earth is affected, it affects everything. And that's um, certainly necessary to have that holistic look. And I would hope that other places can do the same thing. At times, I feel that we still silo our environmental work, um, but it touches everything. And from you know for land use, transportation, development, industry. So what are the key sectors of the economy that Mozambique is focusing on? Because th there must be a priority list, right? We can't just go everything. <laughs> so. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Um, I must say that we, we have been improving over the years in terms of statistics. <laughs> mm -hmm. Years ago, we are struggling really to have our statistics organized and Today, we, you can easily go to the website of our National Statistics Institute and uh, you can get information there besides other development banks like World Bank is doing a lot as well in terms of studies and, and publish the studies. So which really helps the country in trying to understand where are we in terms of numbers, in terms of sectors, in terms of priorities and so on. Uh, so in 2019, according to the data available, the critical sectors were agriculture and extractive industry. And the extractive industry is gaining space really over the last years because it used to be agriculture, the main sector. So these two now are playing an important role. And uh, yeah, it was almost 24% for the GDP coming from agriculture and 23% plus 58, 59% in coming from extractive industry. And then the rest is service sectors, which includes different sectors there. But I think the main ones currently is agriculture and extractive industries. I must say that extractive industry is something new. Mm -hmm. uh, over the last 10 to 15 years, we start discovering is also related to the technologies. We had those resources, but we, <laughs> we didn't use to, to explore them. Uh, but yeah, through these partnerships and the uh, international cooperation and start open up a bit the borders and working with international uh, companies, multinationals and so on. So we are able to discover these resources uh, many of them located in north and center uh, regions of the country. And uh, yeah, since then, extractive industries is really playing an important sector. It, it, it became an important sector and it's, it's playing an important role in the development process. And it's mainly, here we are talking mainly about oil, gas and coal. So these three are really playing an important role now. Currently, we have multinationals working in country and leading like the, the assessments and uh, leading the business. Uh, what I would say is that there are good, 
they are doing really good things because they are trying to explore what we have and they are also trying to do their best when it comes to protect or help the communities impacted by these projects uh, in improving their livelihoods. Uh, but again, like we, we are still have long way to go, especially in terms of our capacity as Mozambicans. Capacity to be, to be able to be part of this business and capacity to be able to track what they are doing. Mm -hmm. You know, we are talking about resources. So the ownership of these resources is really a critical point here. So we need to have the right capacity to be there with them and track what they are doing. So there, we still have challenges because we don't have yet enough Mozambicans with the right capacity to do the work. Doesn't meaning that they are not working with Mozambicans. They're employing Mozambicans. They are training Mozambicans. But as you may know, this process takes time. Mm -hmm. So we, we, we got the opportunity to explore these resources, which was critical to our country. But we didn't have enough time to prepare ourselves to be, to, to be under control of the situation. So we decided to not lose the opportunity and learning by doing. In the beginning, we didn't, we didn't use to have the appropriate legal framework. Today we have, fortunately. And we didn't used to have Mozambicans with the right capacity. Today we have some, but it's not enough. So as a result, there are few situations that we still rely on uh, on the skills and human resources and the, I would say the technical expertise and technology from these multinationals to track the business, which is not, we are working together as a partners, of course, but I think that it will be important to have the ownership of this process as Mozambicans. To be more specific, our government and our people should have control over these resources and should be able to track what's going on. But still, like, the results are there. As I, as I mentioned, the contribution for extractive industry to the GDP, it's increasing over the years. Mm -hmm. And I think that, of course, currently we have issues in country, we have COVID-19, and we are having armed attacks in North due to these Islamic armed groups there. So this is impacting a bit, but I believe that over the years, the contribution to the GDP coming from the extractive industry setup will increase. And the agriculture, agriculture, yes, like, yeah, agriculture. Uh, in 2015, we're about 8% of the families uh, even those living in, in uh, urban areas, not only rural areas, even those living in urban areas used to rely on agriculture has the has their key source of funding, has their key source to survive. And uh, interestingly, 
ninth between ninety-eight to ninety-nine percent of this group are small older farmers. Mm -hmm. So they are still many of them. They are still uh, practicing the rain feed agriculture, which means that they rely on uh, on the raining to start planting. They they don't have uh, enough in terms of I would say investments or funds to to be able to improve their systems. Mm -hmm. And uh, we don't really have, uh, I would say, facilities in country like fiscal incentives or other type of long-term programs. We have many like small initiatives promoted by INGOs. Of course, recently, starting this year, there is a big program called Sustainta led by government, but this is really new. Mm -hmm. So before that, we really don't used to have fiscal incentives. We, do, we don't used to have, um, I would say, uh, enough in terms of technical assistance to these small farmers. So because of lack of knowledge, lack of technology, weak investment, uh, the practice is doing Rain feed, rain feed agriculture in a business as usual, mm -hmm. you know, uh, scenario, which meaning that due to the climate impacts, they have to adjust by themselves, like try to change the planting season. Instead of starting in October, they have to, to move, to push and wait for the raining and what's happening? The raining is coming late, and when it's coming, it's really heavy. Mm -hmm. So it destroys everything. Uh, and uh, there, I would say that the main crops normally are cereals, uh, beans, vegetables, and there are also some commercial crops such as sugarcane, cotton, tea, tobacco, yeah, those are the main ones. But the production systems, like as I said, they are still also struggling to, to access to, besides technology, technical assistance. Another important tool also is seeds. Mm. Seeds, irrigation systems. As I mentioned before, we are still struggling and we are still weak in terms of having water management system, which, is, which includes the capacity as well as the appropriate infrastructure to do so. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's an interesting situation that Mozambique is in because you said 80% um, of rural families uh, depend on agriculture and 98% of them are smallholder and medium-sized, which is a completely different agricultural situation than say the United States or Australia, where we've had these huge conglomerates come in. So like only 1% of our population farms and it's owned by five massive companies. Now that's not true. The 1% is true. I don't know how many it is. And so there's a there's a resurgence here of trying to bring the small farm back and 
and work with things like land in common. Um, but you highlighted the issues that the Mozambican farmers have. And if I understand it correctly, a lot of it is due, well, with climate change, they're not as resilient because they don't have the water catchment systems in place, you know? So if you have no rain and then a deluge, you, you're destroying the crops and losing topsoil. Um, they maybe don't have uh, good crop rotation or like no-till agriculture, which can help with the land. So they're using the land up. Um, so what are some of the programs? I know that we have spoken previously that there are things in place, Shustenta, you mentioned, that are going to these farmers and trying to help them and and catch them up with ways to make them more resilient as we move into a questionable climate going forward <laughs> yeah it's true like um yeah what what the statistics statistics shows uh, for near future for mozambique it's really an increasing on temperatures uh in between like 1.8 to 2.8, increasing also in solar radiation, you know, reducing in rainings. So the, the predictions are really not good. And uh, I didn't also mention that the challenges the, the smallholder farmers are facing is not only to produce, it's also to store or processing, it's also to access the markets. Mm. So they are, they are facing challenges over the whole value chain since the production up to the market. Mm -hmm. So the programs, yes, what's going on actually? Um, over the years, there are different initiatives and those initiatives used to be mainly promoted by NGOs and uh, private organizations, private sector as well. And okay, much recently by government through the Sustenta program. And uh, yes, there are initiatives on, on, on zero tillage, on smart agriculture. But again, as we discussed it before, we are talking about an extensive country with the majority of population working in that sector. So these small and many of them, they are small and short-term initiatives. Mm. So these programs come with limited amount of funds to be implemented in short term, I will say two years, three years maximum. And we are talking about shifting mindsets. We are talking about changing ways of doing things. So you can't not change the system in two, three years. So what's happening? While the program is there, so small older farmers, they have the right assistance. They learn how to do things. And here, I must say that we are talking to illiterated people, never been to a school, so they learn by doing things. And for my own practice and personal experience, you don't convince a small farmer by sending them an engineer and explain him how to do things and talk about technology. They want to see. Mm -hmm. 
they want to see someone who has done what you are saying, who changed things and who got results. So they learn by seeing, testing and doing. So it, it requires time to do that shifting. So short-term programs doesn't help at all. They are a group of farmers, but they are really few and they are really isolated groups in country, some in center, few in north region, not many in south that are really doing smart agriculture. They are cross cropping, they are, you know, putting in place systems. They are trying to have like those simple, very simple and adapted to community irrigation systems. They learn how to do things, but they are still really, I would say an insignificant number looking to the size of population that we are talking about. And what happened? Even these programs normally have to, because this is a requirement, have to involve government since the beginning of the implementation of these initiatives. What happens is that over the time when the funds come to the end, when the program closes, normally they hand over like the the tools, the equipment to government officers to continuing doing the work. But since they're struggling in terms of funding, how they can keep assisting these farmers? The smart ones, they keep doing things, but it's really a small group. The majority just go back to the comfort zone, this way of doing things as they used to do it. You know, so there is a need here to invest in long-term programs, especially look at the predictions in terms of what will happen with our climate here. Mm -hmm. So I hope Sustenta, it's a really big program. It covers all country and it's really targeting all the critical points like production, processing, storage, marketing. It's investing a lot in terms of equipment, all type of equipment. They also have a line for credit and they present different modalities to access to that credit. So these allow most of the smallholder farmers to access to it depending on their own condition. If they can manage because they, they need to give these funds back and most of the funds, they don't have to pay any tax to access to it, which is good because the few programs we used to have in country, the funding programs, the taxes used to be higher. Mm. So these people, many of these people, they cannot access to, to these funds because of the taxing and requirements, which used to be really expensive and difficult for, for simple people to, to have access to it. Mm -hmm. So I hope that this will help really small farmers to go through this moving and uh, get the appropriate capacity to, to manage and to get adapted to these environmental and climate related hazards and challenges. Mm -hmm. I think the, the example of the farmer, as you mentioned, um, you know, these are people who've been farming for generations and having someone from the outside step in for a two or three year period and show them something new might not stick, right? Because it's, it's, uh, it's again, it's this short term need that's addressed, but 
we really need to be looking long term. So what are the highlight some of those yes, long term country solutions that uh, Mozambique is yeah. is forecasting? Yeah, they are they are actually good examples um, because these these small older farmers they some of them they are really skilled and experienced. Mm -hmm. They know how to do things. They only need to shift and do improvements. That's why it's really important to have uh, small farmers working closely with research institutions and working closely with, I would say, agriculture technicians from the ministry or elsewhere. So there is a need here to bring these people to work together. And we have done this before and it worked well. Within these small farm, smallholder farmers groups, they are those ones we used to call them champion. You will always find smart people there, two or three. So they need to become the, the I would say, the lead of all this process. Should it be, it's not easy if you are bringing someone an outsider, you know, because each community, they have their own, how can I say it in English, setup, mm -hmm. ways of living, beliefs, value, the culture is, values, culture is also there. There are hierarchies in terms of, you know, who is taking decision, who is who at community level. So an outsider, they, before bring change, needs to start building trust. Mm -hmm. They need to trust on you before they change the way they do things to make you happy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so these champions, they really have an important role to play there. So I, I really like that approach to work with these champions and then these champions lead the process within the community because they live there. They're from there. They know um, the culture. They know the principles. They know how decisions are, make, are making there. So working with them and then they lead the process. It's, it's one way of doing it because... And, and while designing these programs, take into account the time need to invest on capacity building, which should be the starting point. So the investment shouldn't really look at on bringing something, teach and go, mm -hmm. you know, but look at how can we invest doing things is true, but how can we invest, how can we allocate extra resources, efforts, and support on capacity building because the foundations needs to be there. So this was done before and it, it can really function, can bring results and can help us to get where we are looking to be. Besides that, uh, when it comes to design programs and allocate budget, I know that we as a country, we have so many priorities. I was mentioning, for example, the challenges we are still facing on social basic services, mm -hmm. health, education, and so on. 
But when it comes to plan and prioritize how are we going to allocate resources, we should really consider uh, agriculture as well. Fortunately, we have Sustenta, but Sustenta alone <laughs> won't respond to all country needs. How can we have more Sustentas or more similar programs you know, in assisting small farmers really to have a long-term access to, to investments, access to funds, to be able to keep the business, you know, going up to the point that they can generate their own resources and be able to pay for services. For example, one important thing, it's climate insurance services. Small farmers should be able now to access to insurance. Mm -hmm. But for that, they need to pay for it. I was part of a group that was doing an assessment last year, working with small older farmers in north region of the country. And we are trying to see what could be the strategy to design a microinsurance program, really in trying to help small farmers, small older farmers in dealing with, with climate impacts. And one of the big challenges in talking to the small older farmers was the payment. They were saying that I'm already struggling because I'm not getting much for my farm. I can't sell almost, you know, I, I'm not selling as I used to do before especially for those ones working with commercial crops. And he was asking, I need help. So where I will get money to pay for microinsurance services? So then we, we go back. So we will keep moving in a cycle <laughs> in trying to find solutions. So for me, it's, it's, it's really considered those two topics has a priority, but consider priority, in my opinion, is not only to say and include in the strategy and plans, it's to allocate the appropriate budget to address the really needs, the really needs, you know? So, uh, in, uh, we still, unfortunately, we still rely on uh, developed countries to help us with our with our budget mm -hmm. we are not sustainable mm -hmm. you know so we are still relying on uh, developed country to help us in reaching our budget but when this support comes comes also with clear requirements where we should be investing these funds you know, we don't have the freedom to decide. Total freedom. Let's let's let me say like that. Total freedom to prioritize the location. Most of these funds they come with specific requirements on how these funds should be allocated. So this doesn't help at all because sometimes we have to apply these funds has requested, not necessarily has we need. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
you see? So if we can start having, but again, there, there are already a lot of uh, lobby, advocacy, awareness raising campaigns going on on these topics, because as I mentioned, those are new topics. Mm -hmm. So decision makers and people sitting in critical positions, you know, people who really make difference in this country needs to know what we are talking about to be able to take decision in favor of these topics. If they don't understand what is climate change, the impact in our economy and what could be done to address these challenges. Of course, they won't, they won't take this into account when they sit to take the last decision on where they should allocate the money. Mm -hmm. Do you, you think know? this has driven the so need for this strong legal framework within the country? Yeah. No, the legal framework is there, actually. Well, it's, I'm saying, like, was that part of, yeah. part of what drove it? Yes. Is that you're receiving these funds yes. and you want to be able to say, look, we, we have this in place and we want to be able to better our future as much as we possibly can in the, exactly. in the threat of climate change, right? Exactly, exactly. But again, like, I'm looking there into... Yeah, two points of view. One is is the that we are not sustainable as a country, so we're still depending on international support to increase our country budget and to be able, you know, to perform the activities we have listed as a priority for our country. The second, we also have our own money. Mm -hmm. Of course, we, we rely on the international investment, I would say development funds that are coming, but we also have our own funds coming from the development process and different sectors in country are all contributing for, for this process. So I'm looking at this in two different perspectives. One is the requirements, but another one is our own capacity, especially when it comes to decision-making process, because we are not yet I'm not saying that all decision makers doesn't, don't understand climate and environmental issues, but I'm saying that there is a big group of people who really play a critical role when it comes to take and you know decide things in our country that not yet understand clearly. Of course, Zidai, it was really bad mm -hmm. for our country but at some point, help it, people mm. to realize, you know, what we are talking about. Because sometimes people need to see and feel it to say, oh, my God, which is completely different from read elsewhere that there is a high quark or something happening elsewhere. Mm -hmm. So it happened to understand, but still, you know, there is a... When I'm saying capacity building slash awareness raising, it's really explaining, showing, demonstrating. Because if the person understands and becomes sensitive, of course, when it comes to sit and decide, we'll consider something as a priority. So 
I think those are some of the long-term uh, interventions that we as a country need to consider, you know, continuing. As I said, the effort is here. We can feel it. We know that many things happen, but we still need to continue investing a lot in capacity building for all and different group of people. We still need to invest a lot in shifting our planning system, especially when it comes to allocate resources. Mm -hmm. We still need to start really demanding to have long-term programs, not short-term because it doesn't help at all. We, yeah, I know and I do recognize that we, we have so many priorities that sometimes it's difficult or many times it's difficult to prioritize. But we need to try to, to think about this as a serious. We are really very vulnerable country. Our location doesn't help us. Otherwise, we'll keep investing, building roads on DL basis. Mm -hmm. You know, because we are still building roads using the old style codes while we should build roads now using climate adapted codes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you sharing uh, the unique situation that Mozambique is in, in terms of uh, its location, geography, the makeup of the people and the industry. Um, it sounds like you guys have a fabulous legal framework in place and a plan to move forward with. Um, as much as Mozambique is unique uh, as an African country, at the same time, it sounds like you share some of the problems that we're sharing around the world with decision makers who are either not aware of climate change or especially in the United States, we still have climate change deniers because <laughs> they're not directly affected. And as you rightly said, Cyclone Idai was horrendous on so many fronts from a personal devastation to infrastructure devastation. But at the same time, it's a wake up call maybe to some of these people who uh, need to see it to believe it. We experienced the same in the US with hurricanes and wildfires and crop failure. And um, you sometimes wish you didn't have to go through those hardships to get to the point you want to get to. But um, maybe I would love to continue to follow Mozambique and see how you develop uh, and how these structures that are in place are going to move the country forward and make it more climate resilient as you face uh, the impending threat of climate change. Do you have any closing thoughts that you would like to leave us with, Carmen? Uh, no, just just agree with you and say that it's... Um, actually, I look at my country as a lucky country and very rich in terms of resources, natural resources. We have fertile land. We have, you know, an amazing sea. Our seafood, it's known worldwide. We have amazing forests. Like in terms of natural, and as I was mentioned, we also discovered these um, minerals, oil, gas. So in terms of really natural resources, we, we are lucky as a country. We have an extensive and rich country. Uh, we have done a lot because after liberation, we really don't used to have Mozambicans. You know, the illiteracy rate was really high. 
And today you can see Mozambicans, and this is a result of government and development partners as well. And there are also private initiatives that are pushing, pushing to improve the education, to make sure that people can have access to school. So there, I really would like to highlight these uh, good uh, practices and the example the country uh, have to share as well. It's really a matter of having the, the right planning and budgeting and capacity in place to implement. And when I'm saying capacity, is not only financial, but technical and the, the technology as well. So, yeah, I think this, all these things could help us to move forward. And now uh, I'm really wondering what would be because of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. We can't continue uh, thinking in the world as used to be. Mm -hmm. Things are changing, and I think the world will keep changing from now. So how do we do? How are we going to deal with all this? We already had climate change and other pandemics and diseases, and now we have COVID-19. Mm -hmm. So this is something that we, and I don't believe that it will disappear tomorrow. Mm -mm. is something that we should now consider and for us especially developed countries are struggling to deal with this pandemic and for sure this will impact in the the size of support financial support the country will get over the next years mm -hmm. so this also will put us in a very sensitive situation as a country I'm mm -hmm. worried about the future. Mm -hmm. That's really very about the near future. Yeah, very understandable. I, uh, I, yeah, I agree. COVID has turned the world upside down, and we're all trying to figure out what to do. And I don't know if we have the answer. I would say a silver lining is I feel that people are reaching out right across oceans and countries, even though we're locked down. You know, in our in our homes or in our offices, exactly. um, we can yeah. reach out digitally and try and create communication that way. Because I, I think it's with a global problem, it's going to take a global effort. And this could be what we need to have a global response to climate change, because that's a global problem as well, you know? But. It's true. Mm -hmm. Well, Carmen, true. I really appreciate it. Muito obrigada. And um, <laughs> I'll be thinking of you over in uh, Mozambique. And uh, again, Thank I appreciate you. you taking the time to educate us about your country and all the amazing work that you're doing and the amazing work that Mozambicans are doing as well. Thank you very much. Hope what I've shared here, it will help also people to know a bit more about our country. I hope after this conversation, people start searching and learning more. And I must say that Many, many people that I know came to visit and they loved, they loved the country. So they, yeah, they I keep coming as much as they can. So it's also a good place to visit. So you are welcome to, to visit. We, we have good, good and best things here to, to see.
I would love to. I would, we just need to yes. let Americans leave the country. Nobody wants us right now. So because <laughs> of COVID, which is fine. I don't want to go around spreading anything, but I have a big list of yeah. places and Mozambique is certainly on there. I would love to see that part of the world yes. and, and the people. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's true. Okay, pleasure. Thank pleasure. you, Carmen. Have a wonderful evening. Thank you very evening. much. <laughs> Thank you. Bye. Goodbye. Bye. Obrigada to Carmen for joining us and telling us about what's happening on the ground in Mozambique. The power of people working together to do the right thing is truly amazing. I feel that Carmen's work is just that. Keep an eye out for Mozambique and how Carmen's work plays out in the future. Ciao.